One of the most powerful ways I've found to deepen my meditation practice has been to go on retreat. In fact, one of my favorite authors, Roger Walsh, says, to advance, I retreat. And I find that quite accurate. In a way, it takes leaving one's normal situation to go deep. And I wanted to share that my teaching partner and I, Emily Horn, are leading a week-long meditation retreat this spring on the theme of mind hacking. And during that retreat, we're going to be exploring five mind training practices that we consider to be essential to hacking the mind, to reprogramming the operating system of consciousness itself. And those include concentration, mindfulness, heartfulness, inquiry, and awareness. This retreat's going to happen in the mountains of North Carolina in Flat Rock, and it's going to involve a lot of silent meditation practice, also some social meditation. It's going to be a very small, intimate group. And we're also going to be exploring how to use technology in a conscious way. Because let's be honest, if you go on a long meditation retreat, many of us check our phones and check the internet, even though we're not supposed to. So we wanted to include that in a conscious way in this retreat. And we're really excited to be exploring these things over the course of a full week in the mountains of North Carolina, starting on March 29th. So we'd love, if you're interested in this, to check it out. It's at BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. Buddhist Geeks. Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Emily Horn, and I am joined today by Joanna Harper. She is a teacher at Against the Stream in Los Angeles, California, and she's also in the Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation Society Retreat Teacher Training. So it's really a pleasure and an honor to be able to talk to her today. She's worked in several different environments and contexts, in prisons, high schools, and gangs. And we're going to talk today about inclusivity and diversity in the context of different communities. So Joanna, welcome. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Cool. So I wanted to just kick this off by just getting your framework on um, diversity in the context of Dharma communities and if you wanted to even expand that into the broader communities. Great. Okay. So how I've been trying to look at it or working with um, our Sangha and our community lately is creating a framework for um, the historical or traditional teachings of the Buddha and what was laid out for us as a tradition. So in terms of class and caste and gender, um, I like to lay out the historical or traditional context and then get into the more sort of um, current things that are happening in American Buddhism or Western Buddhism um, and how so many people are really interested in feeling like inclusivity um, is how I like to word it now versus diversity, that inclusivity is something that's really focused on. So when I say inclusivity, I'm talking about, of course, race is a big thing that we're all looking at right now, but really important to pay attention to gender 
um, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identification, um, economic status is a huge thing in Buddhist communities because so often uh, people that can't afford to attend retreats or go to meditation centers are feel excluded. Um, physical and mental disabilities. Uh, so we're looking at lots of different aspects of how to be more inclusive in this tradition. And so far we've... Uh, I don't want to see, say failed to do that, but we haven't really paid attention to what that means. There's always been this idea that anybody is welcome and that anybody can come, but no real steps have been taken to ensure um, that that can happen. I like how you said that you started with the historical and then you could move into the current. So how would you describe the historical Buddha and what he, what he did and then where we are now? Okay, cool. Yeah. So from, you know, from my understanding and reading what I can of the suttas and teachers that I have spoken to, um, you know, at the time of the Buddha, during the Brahmin and the Vedic traditions, the spirituality and the path of any sort of teaching was only available to males that were of upper class, usually kings or merchants, um, and anybody else was excluded from even being able to have a spiritual practice or being able to study in a spiritual lineage. And so what happened when the Buddha reached his enlightenment, he felt like it was for everybody, that there was nobody that wasn't included um, or couldn't be included in practicing and in joining the Sangha, whether you were a monastic or a lay person, that the practice was for everyone. Um, there was a point where women were not part of the Sangha. It was male-only Sanghas when they first started. And his auntie, um, who raised him because his mother died when he was a baby in childbirth, um, Mahapajapati came to him and asked if she could join the Sangha. And at first he said no. Um, and as is in the suttas, she asked three times. He said no all three times. Um, until Ananda came and asked, and, and once Ananda asked, the Buddha said yes. But he felt it wasn't safe for women um, to be going forth, as they say. So leaving the home and being wandering ascetics. So he felt like he was being protective of the women. They could shave their heads, they could wear the robes, um, they could go on alms, but he wanted them to live in the home at first. Uh, he also thought they were a sexual, you know, deviation and fear for the male monastics. So he wanted to keep that really separate. But eventually he did allow uh, women to join the wandering Sangha. Um, and that all started with, with Mahapajapati. So I just, I like that Buddhism actually began with inclusivity. It began without excluding anybody. And the idea that anybody had the possibility of awakening. Um, there was one sutta that I read last night that was saying how a woman could not uh, actually, it is impossible that a woman could be an accomplished one, a fully enlightened one. And when I read that, I got a little bummed out. <laughs> but then I read in the, in the index or appendix, what's actually being said in that is that um, only... Uh, someone of the male sex could actually be a fully enlightened Buddha. And so you'd a woman could get 
could awaken in her lifetime, but would actually have to come back as a male to actually be able to be a Buddha. Um, so anyway, I, that, that might be an aside, but I just, I really appreciate and like that our tradition actually is laid out to include. Um, so that's that historical aspect that I'm talking about. Great. And so as we move into this current um, day and time, yeah. mm-hmm. what, how do you feel like we can become more inclusive in our communities? Do you have specific examples of some of the things that you've done? Yeah, I do. And, and, you know, I feel like it's no fault of anybody's that, you know, it was sort of these uh, white academic upper class males that had the opportunity to go to Asia and come back and be scholars and translate and study. And um, they ended up being the original teachers here. Um, So what has happened was because, you know, sort of the founder syndrome, those are the people that have gravitated towards uh, what's been being taught and who it's being taught by. And so what I think is, is happening, it's happening, and of course it's never fast enough, is that, you know, when we're impatient, it's never fast enough, is that we do have so much more inclusivity than we did even you know, 20 years ago. And what I'm watching, and there might be people out there listening that totally disagree with you, but I'm, I am watching an effort in all of the centers or most of the centers that I'm in contact with. They may not be doing it perfectly, but the conversation is starting. Mm-hmm. And there's really efforts being put towards gender equality for teachers Right. So that the number one thing is to have the faces of people that represent those we want to come in front of the room and teaching the Dharma. And so there's a lot of effort being put into having more female teachers, having teachers of color, which has been a really big struggle for a lot of the people that I know that are on that front line trying to make it happen. Um, Having any different types of sexual orientation or gender identification, you know, we really need to have the faces in front of the room because people tend to be more comfortable knowing that they could see themselves through that person. Yeah. It also makes me feel like language has something to do with this too. Like even the sutta that you just read about women can't become Buddhas, but they can become awakened. There's something about language there that I think is very important. Yeah. What, what do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, I actually have that in my notes. The languaging is so sticky, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's so easy to use a wrong word. When, when I, even when I use the LGBTQ uh, an acronym, it's, it's somebody inevitably will add another letter in there and say, oh, you know, now, now you need to add this letter. <laughs> so, um, or we can say disability, or we can say black or African-American, or we can say so many things wrong. And so being educated and really taking the time to get yourself as up to date as you can, because it's always changing, about around language is really, really important. Because it, it can only take one word for somebody in that's listening to uh, the teachings or listening to a teacher to feel uh, left out. And there's even, there's a new uh, developing trans competence. Somebody wrote a short guide for meditation centers on what words to use and how to assign dormitories and um, all of the various different pronouns 
that need to be used now um, because it's no longer he or she is not acceptable anymore um, for for many, many communities. There's, there's more involved. So yeah, we have a big responsibility around uh, language. And, you know, there are certain teachers who every other thing they say, they'll say he or she just to give that equality, which is a great initial effort. Um, but we also do have to think about all the different possibilities that are sitting in the room. And I know it's a tall order, but if we're really working towards this, which I know our sangha is, um, we're having to educate ourselves a lot. Yeah, it makes me feel like, um, yeah, there's a lot of education that needs to happen. And at the same time, do you feel like it could go into the extreme where we're just overly sensitive and we are afraid to talk? Yeah, uh, <laughs> We are going to be afraid to talk. Yeah. And I think that this sort of oversensitive is a problem when it's not talked about enough. Mm-hmm. And so we are so sensitive that we need to make a point. And again, this is what we're doing at our Sangha is make a point of it being talked about every time someone gets up to teach. Mm-hmm. And we have this opening sort of introduction around including everybody Um, But every time we have a meeting, every time we get together, having a little bit of the time dedicated towards talking about inclusivity. So it's not always this once a year big conversation that feels scary. It takes away a little of the edge the more we talk about it. And so, yeah, we we can't any longer uh, not have the conversation. You know, I'm kind of any... Any organization I'm a part of, I'm insisting on that becoming a regular part of the conversation. Um, And it's going to be uncomfortable. It just is. And that's where, depending upon who we're talking to and what the conversation is, um, having the understanding that we're going into a difficult conversation and how can we hold each other in that. And one of the things that I'm really learning in this, especially if the conversation is a specific one, like let's say it's specific to race or specific to gender or specific to the LGBTIQ community, that all of the other voices in the room that aren't part of that um, identity need to also be seen in some way. Because a lot of people will feel separate from the conversation if they feel like they're the ones who are being pointed at. So I think it's really important to... uh, Allow whoever is in the room, whoever who might not feel marginalized at all, have a voice in saying, yes, I've been marginalized at one point in my life. It may be may be or look different than your marginalization. But I think everybody in the conversation needs to be seen. And then the deeper conversation um, can happen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Yes. And it also makes sense to me that, you know, part of what, you know, we're doing as we as we have this kind of conversation is to creating a space where people feel like they can also make mistakes, (laughs) you know, because some of the times that I've said things, I don't even realize that I've said them. And then somebody will come up to me later and feel safe enough to say, oh, my gosh, did you realize that you just said this and that's not appropriate? And this, you know, could be offensive. Yeah. so how do you how do you like work with things that aren't seen and do you have a way that we could you know as you know if people are listening to this and they want to see some of their blind spots around this do you have any kind of suggestions for them Yeah I for mean us? 
You mean, so, so in terms of training, is that yeah, what Or just yeah. like starting to like, um, maybe even using the, the Buddhist teachings to look at, look at the prejudices that we have. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's so much good literature out there now. I mean, even if you open Tricycle these days, you know, they are always, and I'm really happy, they're always including articles about these topics. Um, it, like I said, it usually leans towards and what is happening in a big way. Um, race is huge now, you know, so we can't, we can't forget what's going on in our country right now. I mean, right now, right now, mm-hmm. there's a lot of violence towards people of color, a lot of violence towards black people, um, as we know, you know, with Ferguson and Staten Island and I forget where the little boy was that was shot by a, a police officer. But there's, you know, there's a lot of outrage right now around race in America. And so it's, that conversation is, it's sort of tipping in that direction more. But I think it's really great that it's happening. I think that this is going to cause the Buddhist community to have to no longer neglect that this is happening. But um, I got a little sidetracked there. But I, why I was saying that and why I was mentioning it is because the more we're exposed, the more we read, the more we care about learning about the conversation, there's stuff out there to find. I mean, like I was saying, there's this great little pamphlet on uh, developing trans competence that's available online. There's quite a few beautiful books out right now about women in Buddhism and what the female monastics are facing um, in terms of not being able to be fully ordained. Uh, There's all kinds of amazing workshops. You know, they're still called multicultural or diversity workshops. Um, There's an organization called Visions, which does a great four-day, lots of different places in the country where people are learning about languaging and sensitivity and internalized and externalized oppression and how, you know, how we are unaware of what we're saying and what we're doing and how it affects other people. But I, one of the best ways I think that we can face this, if, if we're teachers or if we are speaking in front of a group is to say, to acknowledge that we might make a mistake, to acknowledge that we're working on it and we're sensitive to it, and we care about it. And if we offend anybody, we apologize and to ask questions. So I invite people to, I like to ask questions, and I like to invite people to approach me if I've said anything that I need to learn about. So it's not about being wrong or being, or not caring or being insensitive, but I just don't know yet. So please approach me, please let me know. And then for me also, I work with a lot of youth and, you know, this gender fluidity thing is becoming really (laughs) interesting because there's so many words that can and can't be used. And so I just ask a lot of questions and most people are happy to share and feel cared for if you're asking the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, Pablo Doss and I just did a day long at Against the Stream called Radical Inclusion. And we didn't know who was going to show up or, or what was going to happen. But, you know, we had a woman in a wheelchair and I was doing walking meditation. So I all I had to do was ask her, you know, what does she need? How can I make this so that she doesn't feel um, not a part of it? And there was so much appreciation just in the asking from her. So I think to be too afraid uh, isn't going to serve anybody that's trying to have this conversation. We just we need to be humble. 
we need to ask questions, and we need to be willing to make mistakes and be approached by it. I was giving a talk, and I was, you know, including a Martin Luther King Jr. Um, quote, and I had some, and I left Jr. off of the name. I just said Martin Luther King, and I was approached after by somebody who was really upset about that um, that I'd left the Jr. off. And so, you know, part of me was like, well, God, can't you just be grateful that I included this quote? And instead, you know, all they could hear was what I didn't say. And so I have, we have to really be sensitive to that and let people um, let us know. <laughs> That's how we're going to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're, when we're really confronting some of this, um, it's big stuff, right? So yeah. how, do you, how do you suggest that we work with the anger and the guilt and the sadness that, that will inevitably start to come up as we break down some of these barriers? Yeah. Um, well, I guess it, it goes back to, well, forgiveness practice is great. <laughs> we, we love forgiveness practice. Um, but it goes back to, again, knowing as we're going in that mistakes are possible. So, I mean, we as teachers, and I don't know if you're just talking about teachers or if you're talking about anybody that wants to be part of their conversation. Yeah, I think anybody can be part of their conversation. And I think what you're saying already, like some of the times you're framing as teachers, but it, that would be the same if, if you're a CEO, you're executive, or you're like actually, you know, leading a team or even a member of a team. You know, some of this stuff is across the board. Um, yeah. You know, so your applicable. question is sort of like, how do we practice with... Uh, yeah. The discomfort or the um, the discomfort that comes up with these in these kind of conversations. Yeah. Well, you know, bottom line, this is what we practice for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Practice to connect with not only you know the joys and the happinesses, but yeah. the discomforts. Yeah, this is like the meditation in social form. You know, it is. <laughs> yeah. it is. And you know. What, what I so often, you know, like to let people know is, yeah, it's great to be a good meditator and know how to sit for 30 minutes or an hour um, and have a really nice practice. But can you take it off the cushion? How, how does the sort of interpersonal mindfulness practice get engaged um, when really uncomfortable things happen? So just like anything else, it's, it's allowing ourselves to spaciously meet the experience and then being really honest with it. So instead of, if we can get there, it's a hard practice. You know, it's like a, it's a right speech practice. Instead of the typical reactionary words coming out or the reactionary attitude, which might be to want to stop the conversation or to be defensive in some way, if we can really connect to whatever's arising for us, the discomfort, the guilt, the sadness, the confusion, you know, whatever it is, and learn to express that, that's where the connection can happen. Just in the acknowledgement, like, wow, this makes me really uncomfortable, and I don't even know what to do about it. So, so often we're wanting to know what to do. You know, what should we do about it? And the first step first for everybody around this conversation is first is to acknowledge that it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't even want to acknowledge that they want it. They'd rather they either avoid it or they act as if um, it should be okay if they're going to be in it. Uh, so the encouragement for me is just a really acknowledging it in yourself um, so that you can then be transparent and, and honest with who you're sharing the information with. Nobody knows everything. 
you know, I mean, so it's, there are plenty of people that have been in this conversation for 20 years and have been fighting the good fight and still, you know, are say lots of wrong things. Somebody's always going to be pissed off in this conversation, but are we okay with that? And I feel like I've gotten to a point where I'm kind of okay with that. And I get pissed off. Like this, this conversation can get me pretty riled. Um, so it's, and I think that's okay. Yeah. So again, just being able to talk about whatever's happening in a place, um, that supports this kind of conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which we definitely need right now with everything that's happening. Which we definitely need right now. One of the ways that I talk about this in terms of sort of the ultimate, the ultimate realities of this tradition and what it offers as far as liberation and these sort of teachings of not self are really huge. And this comes up in the discussions a lot. You know, if there isn't a fixed or permanent self, then there are no differences. Um, So we're looking at that ultimate teaching. And I think that that's what's gotten people uh, really uncomfortable because they're not oftentimes looking at the relative um, situations of people on the ground that aren't yet enlightened. That that teaching of anatta, um, as much as we can know it to a degree, um, it's the awakened ones who really fully understand that that concept. So when we're talking about race, and it will inevitably come up in a conversation, someone will say, some, you know, Buddhist will say, well, there is no fixed, there is no self, there is no difference, there is no separation. Um, and that doesn't work in this conversation. Um, it's actually really hard to swallow oftentimes in this conversation. Of course, that's what we're aiming towards and looking towards. But when we say that, we're oftentimes negating the stories of people who have been traumatized or severely oppressed and are still working on those aspects of this, this, what we call self. Yeah, that's really good. And that's a misunderstanding of the teachings for sure. It, we have to move into paradox when we t- start talking about yeah, self and no self and we um, do. relative and absolute. And it, right. And again, we don't have to avoid that conversation. Right. But, but maybe, and this is what I'm learning to do, maybe address that. Just yeah. at least say, we understand these are the teachings and full liberation is the idea. Um, the Buddha was not teaching self-help, you know, it's like full liberation was his intention for all of us. So yeah, in terms of that, these ultimate truths are, um, are a great goal. And in the meantime, we're trying to get this word out to many people who would love to experience this, even if we're beginner uh, meditators, um, this experience of even the slightest bit of freedom, mm-hmm. even for a moment. And to do that, we need to include their real lives in the conversation. Yeah. Um, are there any other misunderstandings that you can think about, about the teachings or um, this around the conversation of inclusivity or diversity that you feel are leading to counterproductive results? Um. 
you know, <laughs> this might this might really be hated, but uh, when I when I think about that um, and why I like to use the word inclusivity is because we also, you know, I, I've lived in a lot of sort of progressive communities, right? And it's really easy for progressives to talk about diversity. Um, but in reality, the progressive or we'll call it Buddhist or whatever these uh, more liberal environments are, are often very out of balance. Um, you know, I was at my kid's school the other day and realized it's like there's never going to be an NRA sticker on a car in this parking lot mm -hmm. or there's never going to be, you know, a Bush Cheney sticker on a car in this parking lot. Um, there's never. And so I was thinking, you know, our school claims diversity, but in reality, true diversity is inclusivity of everybody. It's inclusivity of all thought processes. So when we're in this conversation and we start doing this othering, uh, which sometimes when we're, hmm, how do I want to word this skillfully? Sometimes the marginalized person and their maybe frustration or anger wanting to get a point across ends up marginalizing and pushing out the other per the person who they're wanting to hear them. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's one of the things that can be really dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, because if, we're, if what we're trying to do is really create a more diverse, colorful, and when I say colorful, I mean in every way. We want to be inviting to every economic level. We want to be inviting to every either mental or physical disability. If, we, if we're really talking about inclusivity, we have to be careful that we don't end up pushing out or marginalizing the people that we are trying to educate. Yeah. Um, so I see that as being a, a, a problem. And it's really easy, even in, if we think about if we think about Buddhism in America, there's, you know, of the 360 million Americans, there are only 2 million Buddhists, right? There's 2 million Buddhists. Everyone else probably falls in some kind of Christian or agnostic category. Um, and then of those Buddhists, two-thirds of them are Asian Buddhist communities. And so... The issue isn't that Buddhism in America isn't diverse. If we're looking at those are Asian Buddhist communities, okay, they're diverse in terms of America, right? Mm -hmm. And then one third are these sort of, um, you know, these largely white converts. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is like the Tibetan or the Zen or the Vipassana, you know, which is now the whole mindfulness movement. And those groups don't even mix. So these these huge Asian temples in a lot of America, none of us, you know, none of the people I know go to them and they don't come to our centers. Um, so there's this way that I feel like we really need to be care so careful how we get in our comfort zone bubbles. And this thing that we say that we're fighting for, we're not actually doing ourselves. Yeah. Like what does what does true diversity, true inclusivity look like? And I don't, you know, I don't necessarily have an answer for that, but I just know that, you know, there's this, uh, there can be this very elitist thinking even in the marginalized person. Um, and that, you know, again, like I said, creates more separation and then discomfort in the conversation. 
So we really are challenged to look at our own views and opinions and hold them lightly, as the Buddha recommended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm not saying that people don't need to be educated, yeah. but that um, we do. I mean, that's the biggest thing. But oftentimes people can feel attacked and not educated. And yeah. that's, that's dangerous. Well, thank you, Joanna. I appreciate um, you joining us here today. And um, any final last-minute thoughts you have for us, for the Buddhist geeks? <laughs> I mean, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really excited by this conversation. Um, I think there's a lot of possibility in it. It feels it's, it's very new for me to even be talking about it. Um, I've been living it for a long time, but not talking about it. And yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in being on the, the, the line and uh, talking the talk and walking the walk. And I invite anybody that wants to do it with me to join me. <laughs> After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.